Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we have a very special guest, Charles Green, to talk about trust. Yeah, and I'm so excited because I've been a follower of Charles' work for so many years. I'm practically vibrating with excitement at the thought that he's going to be on the show today. So Charles Green is a trusted advisor extraordinaire. He's the author or co-author of three books. Uh, He has a Harvard MBA, but he also drove a taxi in New York City. So I think that's a pretty cool combination. Almost 40 years in consulting, and he owns and runs the firm Trusted Advisor Associates. So, Charlie, welcome. Thank you very much, Rochelle. Great to be here. I appreciate it. I remember reading uh, The Trusted Advisor when it first came out. And up to that point, I'd read all of David Meister's books. And so I naturally ordered this new one. He's one of your uh, two other co-authors when it was first published. But it was my introduction, my very first introduction to your work on trust. I had to look it up. We met in, in New York in September 2012 after we connected on Twitter over the book. And I literally carried my copy of the book all the way from L.A. to New York to ask you to sign it. I mean, that's how much I believe in this book and the principles that you teach. Following you over the years, Rochelle, it's obvious to me that you really do get it. You, you were practicing some of the things we talk about way before. I think we just put words to what you were already doing. Yeah, I didn't know there was a name for it. <laughs> Sometimes it felt weird, but it was it was very effective. And I just I, I'm just a, a big fan of your work and feel like I'm excited to introduce you to our audience. So what we'd like to do for this interview is two things. So we want to dive into some key points in the book that that we think will really resonate with our audience of authority builders. And our, our people are mostly, we're consultants, software developers, freelancers, and the like, uh, mostly have our own businesses. And then we want to be sure to save some time at the end to talk about your business model a little bit, you know, how the book fits in with that even 20 years later, and how you've built your authority business. Let's do it. Okay. What exactly is a trusted advisor and, and why should we all want to be one? <laughs> if I had to put a, a one-line definition to it, uh, a, a trusted advisor is someone you feel comfortable sharing your innermost as well as your outermost thoughts with. Uh, they have your best interests at heart. You know, they're competent, they're capable, they're dependable, but above all, they have your best interests at heart and you can confide in them in all manner of things. Why should we do it? Uh, I mean, I think it's sort of self-evident. Who doesn't need that? And on some level in life and business, you know, if you don't have somebody that approaches that kind of thing, you're a lonely person and you're missing out on a lot. Uh, and I think the ability to be that kind of role to somebody else is is hugely powerful and, and very gratifying for, you know, for both parties to the relationship. Mm. Yeah, I mean, as you were saying that, that's what struck me is the favorite, my really, really favorite part of the work is getting to know people on a deeper level. And it's, it's not always easy to do that. It takes time and effort, but it's, it's a very rich experience. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is that um, the, the notion of trust and trusted advisor and all that's full of a lot of myths. Like you know, one of my favorite ones is trust takes time. It really doesn't. It more takes courage 
uh, to your point of uh, being willing to open yourself up, being willing to engage other people, uh, to be a safe haven for tough issues. The truth is trust gets, uh, it doesn't just aggregate naturally over time. It accrues in little step functions, moments when, you know, you say the right thing and somebody opens up to you or vice versa. It's useful to think of it as a, a series of step functions that are driven partly by your trustworthiness and partly by your own personal courage in, in seeking out relationships with others. Maybe you could talk some more about the, the trust equation, because the first time I read this, it took me a while to make sure I understood the equation. And then it, it's a game changer. What is the trust equation and what does it evaluate exactly? Right. Well, let me just set the context. A, if you think about it, just in commonsensical terms, a relationship of trust, you know, you trust me, I trust you, is made up of two parties. One does the trusting and the other one is trusted. And the rules of the game are that, you know, if you click, then you reverse roles and the trustor becomes the trustee and the trustee becomes the trustor and you go back and forth. The trust equation is for the trustworthiness side of it, the trusted person. So I think of it as a set of, let's call it virtues for, you know, an unusual word. And it takes the notion of trustworthiness, puts it in that familiar format of an equation. The equation is four factors. It's C plus R plus I over S. And very quickly, C stands for credibility. Like, can I believe what you say? Are you competent? Uh, is the logic tight? You know, does it make sense what you're saying? R stands for reliability. Can I depend on you? Are you reliable? Do you, you know, do you have a good track record? Do you do what you said you would do? The I, the last factor in the numerator, stands for intimacy, which is an interesting and unusual word in the business context, mm. but it goes to what we were talking about before. Do I feel safe and secure sharing things with you uh, that you're not going to you know, laugh at the wrong place or abuse my confidences, that sort of thing? So those three are in the numerator, and if I perceive you as high in those three variables, then to that extent, you know, you're highly trustworthy. The denominator factor obviously goes the other way. And it's S stands for self-orientation. And that comes in two flavors. The obvious one is selfishness. If you're highly selfish, then you're not, you know, to that extent, not very trustworthy. The other one, much more common to everybody on this uh, audience, though, and, and all of us talking, is not selfishness. It's self-preoccupation. It's neurotic self-obsession, always worrying. How am I doing? How's it coming off? You know, are they paying attention to me? Why is nobody listening to me? Why is everybody looking at me? All these forms which basically drive us within ourselves and prevent us from being able to sort of reach out and connect with others. C plus R plus I over S, that's the trust equation. Uh, about 10 years ago, it dawned on me, we've been using it mainly as a conceptual model, and it dawned on me that would actually make a really cool self-assessment tool. So I went back to the book, pulled out like five questions for each of those four variables, threw them up on the web, and, uh, and waited for the crowds to roll in. Well, they trickled in, <laughs> but, uh, but it's been a while, and we got over 100,000 people of taking it. And we can now say with some level of st statistical confidence a few things about trustworthiness. Like, let me just put you two on the spot here. Who do you figure scores higher on the trust equation? Uh, we call it the trust quotient. Men or women? What do you think? Quick guess. Don't overthink it. Women. You are correct. Not only that, but when I ask audiences that, maybe 300 over the years, literally 297 out of 300, only three exceptions that I can recall, did the group say, eh, men. 
you know, that's literally 99% of the time group, <laughs> yeah, probably women. So there's something deeply commonsensical about that. The other one that may be less obvious, but if you think about it, it also makes sense, is that, um, first of all, almost all the outperformance of women over men is that women scored more highly on one of those factors, just one of them. And if you think about it, you might guess it's probably intimacy. Intimacy, right. Right. And uh, so, and related to that, um, do you know what the most trusted profession is? You know, Gallup and Yankelovich and people do these studies. Who do you think comes out at the top of the most trusted professions list all the time? Oh, I don't know. Most people guess, well, teachers or doctors or nurses. Yeah, I would have said doctors. Well, nurses are number one. You were right there. And um, with with one exception, in the year 2002, firemen outranked nurses. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) obvious reason. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the next year it was back to nurses. It's been nurses ever since. Now, nursing in the U.S. is an 89% female profession. And I would argue if you had to pick one job critical performance component to be an excellent nurse, I don't care whether you're male nurse, female nurse, whatever, it's probably intimacy. You know, the ability to create that. Uh, to absolute willing to be vulnerable in front of another person. That's the essence of nursing. So when we ran in a, a regression equation on the, on the, on the data, I'd always assumed it was self-orientation because we stuck it in the denominator. But it turns out if you map those four factors against each other, intimacy has a slight edge. So intimacy is the single biggest factor driving trustworthiness. And for most of your audience, Rochelle, and I'm the same as mine, you know, that's not how most of us think. We think credibility. We think credentials. We think expertise, subject matter mastery. Uh, but the truth is the, the strongest key to creating, you know, to being trustworthy is that intimacy factor. There, I just talked way too long. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that was, a, that was amazing. And you mentioned a word that you, you sort of guessed where I was going to go with that because you just used the word vulnerability. And we've talked about that previously as a trust builder on this show. It's sort of obvious to me, but I don't think it's obvious in general that vulnerability and intimacy can go hand in hand. And I noticed also uh, there's some um, in, in the book, the idea of going first. If you think about it, most forms of relationship, I mean, think about dating, for example, or think about friends or think about trust. What happens is one person usually initiates. They take a little bit of a risk. You know, at its simplest level, somebody extends their hand in a handshake, and the other person does or does not respond. Now, with a handshake, you'd be a horribly rude person if you didn't respond to a handshake with a handshake. In a dating environment, it's a little bit less so. But, but basically, we ratchet up relationships one little gesture at a time. So if you aspire to be a trusted advisor to your clients, um, the wrong strategy would be sitting around aggressively waiting for the phone to ring or <laughs> you know, hoping that people are going to notice you and say, boy, he looks trustworthy. If you want to make your own luck, you have to learn how to take that first risk. Now, that's the other side of trust. It's not the trustworthiness trust equation. It's how do you take a risk? Well, and, and most of it is in this emotional realm of putting yourself out there. A little bit and having the courage to say something like, listen, I may be totally off base here, but I'm wondering if, or we don't know your business that well yet, but let me make a maybe not so crazy guess. Here's a hypothesis to put something out there. And I think most of us in consultative professions, which I think you guys work mostly with, uh, we're so afraid of making a mistake, you know, being found out to be wrong 
that mm-hmm. we continually don't take risks and we end up making the other type of error, which is the error of never, never taking a risk. And if you don't take a risk, you get nowhere. If you never take the shot, you'll never make the goal, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think especially when you're earlier in your career, I mean, I know for myself, when I was in a big firm and I was the junior person in the room, my big goal, and it, I was self-oriented. I know I was. My big goal was to listen, yes, but I also had to say like one sentence. So there was a reason for me to have been there. And I always hoped the sentence wasn't stupid. And then after the first year, you know, you kind of let that go because you realize it's not about you. It's about the room and it's about absorbing what the clients or potential clients are telling you and how you can how you can serve them. I think you would agree. The older we get, the easier it gets. Uh, there is, I mean, my way of saying it is with every year that passes, I get exactly 365 days older. And on average, everybody else doesn't, which means with every year that goes by, you know, you, you have an advantage. And we've seen in that, T, that TQ data that I mentioned, trustworthiness goes up with every uh, age cohort. We did 10-year age cohorts. It goes up with age, which again, makes sense. But if, if I have any message to younger people out there, because I was exactly like you, Rochelle, and uh, you know, when you're young, you're scared. You want to make your bones. You're worried people are going to look badly at you. You got to prove yourself, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Give it up. If you're a 25-year-old person and you're dealing with a 50-year-old client, you're probably going to try and look 35. Well, don't. Anybody who's 50 has been through 25, they've been through 35, they know the difference. Just be the best 25 that you can. The notion that you're being authentic and not trying to put one over on people is worth a lot more than your ability to mimic somebody who's older and looks smart. Just give it up. My own experience when I was that age and and having 50-something clients, they appreciate you more. And some of them mentored me. I mean, I had clients mentoring me through meetings and telling me things that they wouldn't tell somebody else because I think they kind of felt sorry for the junior person on the team who wasn't the brightest at the table, didn't have the most experience yet, but wanted to, right, and cared. I, yeah. I think that's true. I suspect also in general in 21st century American business, there's a gender factor too. I think you know, men tend to find women a little bit less threatening. But there's also what you just said. The driver is if you're not trying to prove anyone and if you're not being a jerk about it, older people want to mentor. They they see you trying hard sincerely. They want to help. Most people do. And, you know, we shut ourselves off from that kind of mentorship if we're driven by our fear. So, again, that's a great reason what you just said to to open up and and relax. Easier said than done, but it's true. Well, it's one step at a time, though. The way you describe it makes it sound easier because you're just taking one step. Yeah, right. It's just one. How does strength of ego tie in with this? It feels like it's very tightly correlated. Well, let's be clear what we're talking about if we, if we say ego. I think if you have a strong ego, you do not have to win every argument. You do not have to dominate X percent of the conversation. You do not have to prove yourself right. If you really have a strong ego and you're comfortable watching other people talk, occasionally adding something to the conversation, maybe moving things along, uh, and you're not dominated by a desire to win and have somebody else lose. So, uh, yes, I think in that sense, a strong ego is is very much tied up. I think in order to have what I call low self-orientation, you have to have a strong ego to get past all this other stuff. It almost seems like a paradox. So like, it's nice that you described it like that because it's... I think it is. I think, you know, the, the language of paradox, um, it's one thing that keeps popping up over and over. 
in, in trust. Things are, one of my iconic stories is when a, a, a new client focused me with some difficult question, what experience have you had over here? And we'd had none. And I was flummoxed what to say. And then my boss jumped in. He said, none that I can think of. We've never done that. And I thought, oh my God, you can tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. The, 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 we all think that to say, I don't know anything is the worst thing you can say. Well, paradoxically, it was the best thing. And when it comes to sales, I think another paradox thing that I love is that uh, the best way to sell is stop selling in the traditional sense of the word, seeking closing and, and all that right. sort of thing. And just sit back and try and figure out what's the best thing for this client. Well, maybe, Charlie, you could talk a little bit about this trust building process. In the book, you've described it as a five-step trust building process. I'm not sure if you still describe it that way, but the skill set is so interesting to me around each of the steps. We, we still do that. It's the five-step process. The acronym is LFAC, Engage, Listen, Frame, Envision, Commit. It's a stupid acronym, but <laughs> if you have a better one, don't tell me because the book's already written. I can't take it back. <laughs> But I, I have come to really just emphasize two points about it, and they, and they both have to do with listening, the second step. Because if we go back to that reciprocity notion, giving gesture for gesture, it turns out that the most powerful way to get your advice taken, which is at the heart of, you know, it's the advisor part of trusted advisor, how to get your advice taken. The single best advice is if you start out by really listening to the other person in a particular way, then they become willing to listen to you. When they're listening to you, the rest is easy. So the key is not so-called active listening or listening to test hypotheses, but listening so that the other person feels heard, so that they feel understood. You don't have to agree with them. You know, It's simply to be able to appreciate that other person, where they're coming from, to the point where emotionally they say, well, good, you, know, you, you understand me. So now what have you got to say? If you skip over that step and jump ahead to framing and envisioning and action steps, which is where most of us want to go, if you skip over that listen step, you never got the buy-in. You never got the person to say emotionally, okay, you understand me. Now I'll listen to you. They're stuck with waiting for you to understand them. And here we are launching off on our you know, sales pitch. So the, the most critical step is the second one. And the most critical skill is listening to, to make sure that the other party feels heard. It doesn't sound very quantitative or process-oriented or analytic-oriented because it's not. It's just deeply human. It's how people work. And they don't teach that at Harvard Business School. So what do you see as the cues that a client would give off that they're, they're feeling heard? What would you say, visual or, or auditory? Yeah, I think we feel them in our gut. You know, they lean in. They get more animated. They use their hands. They'll maybe nod their head vigorously. We can get distracted by worrying too much about what the cues are. All of us on this call here, we're products of eons of evolution. And we pick on so much subconsciously. We pick up on so much subconsciously that it's really only in the last few hundred years that we've become obsessed with rationally and behaviorally defining things and analytically deducing them. And I urge people to just you know relax a little bit and trust your gut. You know when they're paying attention to you and you know when you're boring the hell out of them. If you need to stop every once in a while and say something like, hey, you know, is this making sense? Are we doing okay here? So you're soliciting a little bit of feedback. But other than that, I would argue we all know this stuff. I've always found that taking this approach, especially in a sales meeting, which is perhaps one of the higher pressure sorts of meetings that you'll have, it takes all the pressure off you. 
Absolutely. And, and that's another paradox. And the funny thing is, if you relax and really pay attention to the other person and stop worrying about what the next meeting is, when you're going to close the deal, how they're thinking about you, if you just pay attention to them, A, it takes the pressure off, and B, it improves the odds of you getting the sale. If you run across somebody in a sales situation who seems to pay attention to you, seems to react to what you're doing, is not in a hurry to close the deal, uh, seems to have your best interest at heart, my God, why wouldn't you buy from that person? You would. That's who you want to buy from. The paradox is at a fundamental level in the sales context, we have to give up our attachment to getting the sale as the goal and substitute helping the client as the goal. It doesn't mean you can't measure stuff. It doesn't mean you can't occasionally sit back and examine the data and see how you're doing. But when we get to the point of being obsessed by these metrics, when you're in the meeting face-to-face, then you're, you're just lost in that self-orientation. It's all about you and the other person can feel it. And they may not be able to describe your bad behaviors, but they feel them very much. We can all sense when somebody is working us to get the sale. And we can all sense when you run into somebody who is really just there to help you. Yeah, I always call it being in flow with those kinds of meetings because the switch to having meetings in person to doing them on the phone also gives you a very focused channel to hear kind of the other person and understand their emotions through the phone. So I just think of it as flow. It just naturally flows. It's a great way to think of it. And other people, I forget, somebody wrote a lot about the notion of flow, but yeah, very, very right idea. Yeah. I think you may have just described this, Charlie, that you talk in the book about this trusted advisor mindset Jonathan and I are both just fascinated with mindset about all kinds of different things. We talk about it probably every third episode or so at least. What is in the mindset then of a trusted advisor? Obviously, orientation on the client. Yeah, I I totally agree with you, by the way, about the mindset thing. I play around in the corporate training world, and so much of corporate training has been reduced to the language of behaviorism. Participants will learn the behaviors associated with, and then we collect the metrics to exhibit the levels of behavior. Everything becomes a competency model. And that works fine for certain things that are kind of lower level interactions. But if you're talking about something as profound as trust, you have to be, I'll sound corny here, pure of heart. It, it has to be coming from the right mindset. Some of those mindsets are in in the sales realm, that fundamental one I just mentioned of your goal is not to get the sale. Your goal is to help the client. Other mindsets are it's not about me, it's about them. And if they're angry at you, you, we have to learn to say, well, it's not that they're angry at me, they're angry. That's the thing to notice. And it's not about you at all. We all walk around in our own neurotic uh, bubbles. It's worrying about what other people think. And uh, those of us that can get out of it are able to help the others, and, and they appreciate it. Curiosity is a great mindset to have. You cannot be self-oriented if you're curious, almost by definition, because your mind is focused outside of you. So I think that's another one. And, and vulnerability we touched on as well. Willingness to put a little bit out there in search of, uh, of something higher. So I'd mention those. I especially love the pure of heart. We've never said it that way, I don't think, Jonathan, on the show. Yeah, we, we, we talk about being genuine. Yeah. Genuinely wanting to help and not not as a tactic to convince someone to. Because part of our theory is that is that our audience are all people that are building businesses. And so they left 
corporate or big consulting firms or small consulting firms for a reason. And that reason is that they want to help people. And sometimes they have to figure out exactly who they want to help, but they are pure of heart. Yes. You did that, Rochelle, I know. And and Jonathan, I don't know. You probably did the same. Our motivations are pretty good, but we get lost in these reflections of how I should do it. And maybe I should sign up for this webinar and buy this top 10 list. And uh, all these metrics are cool. Let me get an app. And it just, it trivializes it. It gets in the way of how we started off with, with a certain level of purity. I'm sure we've all interacted with people who are highly technical and they've been rewarded for being technical. And so what happens with consulting and and freelancing is that the reward isn't just for being technical anymore. You have to be more than that. And so it's, it's almost like you have to pull out the EQ that maybe you had before, but hadn't been using. Yeah. I mean, you just described the evolution of any consultant uh, starting. We, we tend to start off as subject matter experts. And as we grow, McKinsey has the T model. You, you have to go horizontal at some point. At another level, I'm noticing in our business, we're getting a lot more inquiries from the technology sector. Because if you think about it, it's a bunch of nerds who started off with some really cool techie stuff. All those products are getting integrated with each other. They're all migrating to the cloud. They're turning into subscription models. And suddenly, all the nerds are having to interface with strategic clients who've got business issues. And suddenly, all this interpersonal trust stuff becomes very relevant. You can't talk to them like another nerd. <laughs> Striking fear in the hearts of nerds everywhere. <laughs> hey, all of, all of us are nerds on some level. Oh, yeah. You're talking to the biggest one. On, I think I'm the biggest one on the call. So. <laughs> I don't know about that. (laughs) I do have a question. This might be a dead end, so feel free to just just say no comment. But since we're talking about nerds and sort of tech and trust, is there a a nice, neat formula like you have for the trust quotient for building trust on a website where you're not actually, because so far we've been talking about listening and having conversations and maybe this is over the phone or in person, but what about when you don't yet have the opportunity to talk with someone? How do you project this? The further away you get from face-to-face, the harder it becomes, and and websites are pretty far away, but I think you can tap into a few things. My, My argument is that the most powerful and fundamental form of trust is interpersonal trust, and therefore what you want to do is tap into personal relationships. Well, one of the best things is pictures. I love it when a website that I go to has people's names and faces and a little bio. Before you make a call, go to LinkedIn. Hopefully, they have a photo and you have a much richer image of who you're talking to. Videos are, are another good thing. Something that offers a sense of the humanity of the people that you're dealing with. I don't have any great prescriptions for how to do that, but it's got to go beyond the platitudes. We here at XYZ Corporation you know, really value our people and... <laughs> Yeah, we're we're committed to blah, 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 blah. Okay, fine. But, you know, show me show me some people that make me believe that. So pictures, uh, audio recordings, some video clips. That's the best I got. I talk about this all the time as well. I'm not an expert like you are. But in the book, you talk about sort of actions speak louder than words. I'm paraphrasing, but it's kind of like you can make claims all day long about yourself, but it's automatically going to be greeted with skepticism. So I would think something like credible sounding testimonials on a website from other smiling face would be a. That's a great point. Thank you for reminding me that you're, you're absolutely right. And by the way, anybody listening, never call yourself a trusted advisor, (laughs) but if somebody else says it about you, that's a lovely thing. 
and that's worthy of a testimonial. That's a, that's a terrific thing. So you're right. Third-party testimonials, I agree. And by the way, they're, they're, they're better to the extent that you could be specific. If it says Joe, customer service manager, I don't care what he says about you. I don't know who the hell Joe is, and I don't care. Right. Yeah. But if it Name, says... Face, bio. Right. Title. Um, yeah, link to site, so on and so forth. Yeah, real. You want everything to seem real. You don't... Whether it's true or not, I certainly go to sites and you sense that it's just like, come on, this is probably a stock photo of, you know, somehow you can tell. I, it's, I suppose it's hard to imagine that our eons of uh, evolution extend to web pages, but it feels to me like it does. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Human beings are remarkable at picking up a variety of stimuli, you know, sense by sense, we're not as good as certain animals in certain ranges, but you add them all up, it's really quite a remarkable package. We, we tend to forget that. I hope this isn't too far afield, but you guys remember Project Aristotle from Google? It no. Was a no. Massive research project that they announced several years ago. It had a multi year study, and they aimed to figure out the essence of good, effective teams, which is a great thing to find out. So they crunched all the numbers and ran all the analyses, and, and it was written up in an HBR article. I remember in good HBR style, the, the author, uh, maybe it wasn't HBR, let me make sure of that. Anyway, opens up by saying, I've always wondered the key to teams, and then I got involved in Project Aristotle. All the data came out, and, and I, I finally know the answer. The answer was paying attention to other people. <laughs> Exactly the right response, because that's the most gigantic duh I, I can imagine. And worse yet, the author of this article kind of expressed amazement. Finally, I know what the key is. It's pay attention to other people. Wow, who would have guessed? Um, yeah, yeah. A blinding flash of the obvious. It's not comfortable for lots of people. I'll coach people and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm taking the first step. I'm connecting with these people on LinkedIn. But what do I say when they, when they accept and I'm like, well, just go to their profile and like, be curious, find something interesting. Like, oh, look, you went to the same school or, or they, they were at NASA. That's the coolest thing ever. Like totally right. Just, you know, be, be a natural human being. Imagine sitting next to them you're meeting somebody at a party or something and you get talking. Wow. You work at NASA. You know, do you know any astronauts? What's that right. like? <laughs> like how hard is that? But for, I do know, I know from experience that is hard for people. It is. You're absolutely right. I think all of us are just encouraging people to be natural here. It does work. People are still people. Well, natural and put yourself out there a little bit. I mean, you can be a shy, introverted person, but you can still talk to somebody at, a, at an event or a gathering or online. If you sort of rank people on, a, let's say, a one to 10 scale of introvert to extrovert, if you're talking to an eight, that's not necessarily better than talking to a three. What matters is if the eight's behaving like a six, then you feel dissed because they're not even, you know, extroverting themselves to you. But if you're talking to somebody who's a three and they're pushing it up to a four, you can sense they're trying. They're trying to reach out past their introversion and, they, and we give them credit for that. So it isn't just a set of behaviors. We can sort of pick up how people are playing against their basic type and we give them credit for that. Yeah, actually, I'd like to touch on that for a moment, because I have a client who has tried to hire extroverts. They're in the financial advisory business, and they've, tr they've tried to hire extroverts. And he said, you know, I'm done because I feel like they're not listening. <laughs> he said, my introverts are interested. They're curious. 
Exactly. I, yes, I would advise a financial advisory firm against that strategy for exactly that reason. You want people who are quiet and thoughtful and willing to listen and let other people do the talk. It's exactly what you want. Financial advice is one of those business. It's it's almost the most intangible and the most intimately personal. A uh, woman who's my financial advisor, who I wrote about in Trust-Based Selling, was fond of saying people would sooner talk about their sex life than their money life. It's that mm. personal. So, yeah, you don't want somebody who's glad-handing. I, I would prefer introverts in that job. Do you think the same thing applies? Does somebody give an extrovert extra credit for really listening? Uh, Yeah, I do a little bit. Let's pick on another business. Executive search is dominated by extroverts. Mm. And uh, they're they're comfortable in any situation. They're always very well-dressed. They answer the phone on the second ring. It does raise a high standard. And and a lot of them, you know, because of their emphasis on all those great social skills, are kind of shallow. And when you meet somebody who really does have these skills – I think that also works in their favor because you don't necessarily expect it that way either. Mm-hmm. I guess what we're saying over and over is no matter who you are, if you're doing an outstanding job of paying attention, being curious, listening to others without fear of your own ego getting bruised, people are going to pick up on it. So how does that translate to social media and building trust? That's a great question. I, I'd be interested in you guys take on this too, but I remember when um, uh, we were hiring a publicist, uh, Andrea Howe and I co-wrote the Trusted Advisor Field book. That was my last book. And we were looking around for a publicist, and we ran across the guy who used to work for Tom Peters. And he had a totally different strategy. He said, you start a year ahead of time. You make a list of 100 or 200 people that you would like to say great things about your book. Start following them and comment on their blog posts. Retweet with added commentary their tweets, ask them questions, engage them on their content. This is very much the same idea that Chris Brogan, who was kind of one of the pioneering social media guys, said his rule was nine tweets about others to one tweet about yourself. There it is, being curious and focusing on other people as opposed to yourself. Well, you do a year of that, and guess what? When you go, go to those 100 people and say, hey, you know, I'm coming out with a book. Would you mind? They're all over themselves to help you. Why? Because you've been helping them. It's reciprocity again. Same thing. <laughs> That's how Rochelle and I met. I was sharing her, <laughs> I was sharing her stuff on Twitter. There you go. Well, it was one of those things where he just kept sharing like the same thing. And I'm like, who is this guy? Why does he keep sharing my stuff? I'm going to read his stuff. I read it and I thought, we are kindred spirits. And it took a couple times to get a meeting with Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan? Yeah. I think it kept going into Twitter jail or something. But uh <laughs> We, we had that first meeting and there's such a thing as instant trust. I mean, we, we did the dance as you talk about each one being a little vulnerable to the other. And then at the, at the end of the conversation, Jonathan, this podcast was Jonathan's idea. He'd already had the name, which I loved. He, he had the concept set up and he said, Hey, how about you join me as a co-host after a one hour conversation? And what are we? 76 episodes in something like that. I think this is 78. Yeah. Wow, that's great. On the social media front, there is such abuse that's out there. This horrific number of people that reach out to you on LinkedIn, and if you accept it, the first thing they do is, you know, I'm a CPA and I'd love to, you know, pitch you or I've got leads. It's just mm-hmm. you know, the, the fact that we can do what amounts to spam at zero marginal cost with all these media has just enticed tons of people to discredit the notion of connecting. 
And the good news is, for those of us that get it, you can stand out very easily against all those who, who don't. That's the thing to remember, I think, is that we don't have to stoop to the lowest common denominator, but we can just play our own game in social media, right? Absolutely. And it'll stand out positively. Now, you're 20 years into this book. I mean, obviously, this is a seminal book, certainly for the consulting professions, and I would argue beyond that. Would you change anything if you were writing it again today? Um, well, we're doing a 20th anniversary edition coming up in a year and a half. So there is one thing that would change, obviously, because back in 2000, uh, the Internet wasn't anything. You know, the iPhone hadn't been invented and uh, social media didn't exist. So we need to address that. But on a more fundamental level, no. I mean, I've gone back. I've been looking at it again lately. And um, I, th I think, actually, we kind of got it. I was kind of aware at the time that we didn't address organizational implications, but I'm not sure we're going to put them in anyway, because it really is about the advisory relationship, individual, one-on-one. -on -one. I later focused on selling in my second book, Trust-Based Selling, but it's in there in Trusted Advisor. You can see a lot of it. So no, I think we, uh, we were lucky. We picked up on a word that was already in common parlance. You couldn't copyright it or trademark it. It was already out there. And we were the first ones who wrote a book about it. And to this day, on, on any given day on Amazon, Let's see, this morning, not that I check obsessively, it was about 12,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I read it in 2003, and it was a total eye-opener, complete game-changer for my approach. It really helped me with the, the self-preoccupation, the imposter syndrome, and always needing to seem like a bright bulb. It just completely changed me. And then reviewing it in uh, preparation for this call, I was like, this is still... Well, first of all, I was like, wow, I forgot how much of this... I got from this book. It just became my DNA after 10 or 15 years of doing consulting. But it was as up to date as ever. It's just great. Well, thank you. That's high praise. Much appreciated. And uh, we're going to have to change a few of the names. Nobody remembers who Lieutenant Columbo was anymore. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> you guys do. Okay. I increasingly find in audiences blank stares. Okay. Stretch that one off. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe a younger one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, Jonathan, before uh, we ask Charlie about his business, is there anything else that we should ask him about the book? Anything else you wanted to be sure we cover? I had a bunch of notes and we covered everything so far, so I would love to shift gears. Yeah. Charlie, you just alluded to this that uh, about the books, obviously not just being relevant, but continuing to be a, a bestseller. So I, I seem to recall, maybe it was in an email, I, I feel like you posted somewhere that the book was still highly ranked and a significant part of your business model. So I'd love to hear you talk about kind of how it fits, you know, almost 20 years later with how you run your business today. Well, the, uh, the quick answer is it's, it's really been core to my business. It does still rank on any given day on Amazon. The ranking is somewhere between seven and 10,000. Like I said, today it's 12,000. But that's out of all books. That's Harry Potter. That's Malcolm Gladwell. That's not just business <laughs> books, not just advisory. So I don't know if it ever hit the bestseller list, whatever, whatever that's defined. But it's been, you know, 18 years. So I'll take that any day. And the three of yeah. us split some small checks. It's always nice, but you don't get rich, you know, unless you write Harry Potter. What it has been is a fantastic business card. I would give books away if it meant people, uh, and sometimes we do, you know, come to something. It's a huge and powerful tool. It's not easy to write a good book. 
Um, but I certainly urge anybody listening to, to think about it. In my case, the term was a pretty good term to, to, to own as a website, trustedadvisor.com, to build a business, Trusted Advisor Associates. The other two books have helped, but it's been kind of an anchoring phrase. I've chosen to build out my business through a series of independent contractor relationships. There's about a dozen associates around the world who I personally train to deliver this material in workshops. I give them all a lot of autonomy rather than trying to come up with a, with a core mandatory set of slides and, and talking points and so forth. Even the administrative staff that we have are independent contractors. There's a uh, bookkeeper who I've had for 10 years. Fantastic. I've never met her. She's up in Erie, Pennsylvania. I only meet my EA once every two years, I think. and She's only 60 miles away in New Jersey. And it's worked out. I've not gotten wealthy rich, not filthy rich, but um, I've done okay. Yeah, the book has been a big part of it in my case. I love that story. It's the book can make all the difference in where it, it provided you build the business that works around it, of course. Yeah, that's right. And one other thing about the book, if I can mention it, when we were shopping around uh, trying to find a publisher, this was at the time Good to Great was the best selling business book. And all the publishers and all the agents that we talked to said, well, where's your data? You know, you got to have data to make all these points. And, and we said, well, it's really not a data book. It's more kind of a wisdom book. All three of us had had, you know, somewhere near 20 years experience in consulting. And we sort of thought, this is the book where we write down all the mistakes we made. So you don't have to do them yourself. Nice. Maester was actually, uh, Rob and I had started working on this. And we ran across Maester, who, who might know many years before at Harvard. And Maester said, I'm basically working on the same book. We described the publishing problem to him. He said, no problem at all. He'd already written two books, Rochelle, which you, you mentioned. So he just picked up the phone, called up Free Press Simon Schuster and said, I got my new book. And they said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's David Maester. <laughs> well, and that's, that's the publishing industry, too. If you, if you published, it's not hard to get it again. If you haven't, you can't. So are all three of you getting together on the 20th anniversary edition? Well, it's an interesting story. I'll, I'll share a little bit of out of school here. Uh, David and Rob are not friends. I'll put it that way. So I'm a go-between, and uh, we've we've worked that out over the years. And David's actually kind of retired. He's very active, yeah. but happily doing things that have nothing to do with business. He's giving cultural lectures about like you know English rock music of the '60s or uh, Hollywood films of the '30s. He gives them to packed audiences in Boston. I could picture that. I could totally picture that. So he's having a lot of fun. And uh, he's, he's basically said, uh, you know, you have my approval. Maybe I'll take a look at it before it's finished. And Rob and I will be a little bit more interactive, but I'm the one doing the lead on it. And I'm the one in between the other two. I don't think it was in the book. But again, you know, I, I read this somewhere. I think it was you that, that wrote it, Charlie. You said that you, you came up with a way to decide in the early years how you would handle leads, consulting and speaking leads that came from the book because there's three co-authors. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. that's uh, And by the way, that example is true for anybody listening who has to worry like about territories and conflict and who owns the client and internal cross-selling, all that stuff. When the book came out, we did start getting leads. And we thought, well, who should get the leads? We're all in business, you know, doing training, consulting, whatever. And we thought, well, maybe we should pass them around in turn. But then we thought, nah, that one came into me. But what do we do if they come into all three? So I don't remember which of us came up with it. I like to think it was me, but who knows? Uh, said, maybe we should read our own book. 
and we should write back to whoever inquires and say, there are three of us that wrote the book. We're all different. And you should pick the person who is right for you. Here's the links to everybody's webpage. Here's our emails. You know, talk to whichever of us you think is right. Well, that was a smart move. I think it was totally consistent with the book. I think it's, it's um, you know, it's devotion to client. And the truth is there's enough out there for everybody. We all ended up doing just fine. Whether it's cross-selling and you're worried about sharing a lead with somebody in your firm who might mess up the relationship, or if you're running territories or something, you know, can you have two people in Canada? The same guidepost is a really good one. What's the right thing for the client? Period. End of sentence. All she wrote. Is that abundance mentality that we talk about? Because the minute you start to think that there's only so much, that the pie is only so big, you're going to hoard your piece. That's right. And it starts bleeding through and all that you do and, and back to eons of evolution. We can all pick up on that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Blair Enns yeah. talks about the stench of desperation. You just, you can just, <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. That's great. A big part of the podcast is, you know, it's right in the name, authority, author. And as you pointed out, even as well as that book has done over the years, you know, you're not uh, flying around in private jets. So what was the, maybe the evolution of the kind of products and services you created around the book for the kinds of uh, leads that you were getting? I mean, I'm imagining with the kind of mindset that you have that you're, you know, you're getting these leads and some people didn't really need, I don't know, maybe one-on-one consulting or one-on-one coaching. So let's put together workshops or let's do these, how did the kind of the, uh, the empire (laughs) grow over time? Rather grandiose term. Um, <laughs> I, in my case, and I don't know if this is true for everybody else, I'm not a believer in goals. I have throughout all my career, I've, you know, maybe up until the last five years, if you'd ever asked me what I was going to be doing five years hence, I would have no idea and I probably would have been wrong. I have always kind of just followed my nose and my instincts. So I've incrementalized into it. I kind of thought I liked the idea of I've done a little bit of teaching. In, in the old consulting firm business. And I even did like a seminar at Northeastern um, as a, for, a, for a semester. So I kind of liked the idea of teaching. And so I wandered into training. And then I kind of got the idea that maybe keynote speaking would be fun. So I went to a keynote speaker conference. I joined the National Speaker Association. And um, it really just kind of incrementally involved. And uh, all the materials that we use we're developed just kind of experimenting and trying things out. We use some role plays that are 15 years old because, you know, I had a good idea and we keep tweaking it and changing it, but it's fundamentally the same. So I think in my case, it was just uh, following my instincts and incrementally trying to see where it led. I never once had any grand inspiration or vision or driving goal or overarching picture of what it was going to look like. It's, and maybe that's just me, but that's what it was like for me, bit by bit. When we interviewed Paul Jarvis, he, he said almost the identical thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yeah. I'm not alone. <laughs> yes. Well, I think there's something about people who are curious and smart. So you can do a lot of different things. The question is, where does your curiosity take you and where do you want to invest your time and energy? Yes, I think that's true. We all have personal life-changing things that impact it too. And if you're, if you're open to that, like I've been, I've been through two divorces 
and I'm, I'm married again, which is the triumph of hope over experience, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> but more importantly, I'm on very good terms with everybody in my past. We're still very good friends. I also am 25 years into a 12-step program, and I raised two kids through teenagerhood uh, and with you know some bad moments and years throughout. And the one lesson I got out of all of that stuff, oh, and I was also an interracial marriage. And all of those things taught me that I really don't know very much. And what little I know, other people don't give a damn about. Nobody's going to listen to me <laughs> telling them what to do. <laughs> you can't tell other people what to do. And that's been sort of my personal, you know, major insight into life is you can't get people to do what you tell them to do. And if you take that as a learning, you can look back and see a lot of the stuff in the trusted advisor is how do you get people to take your advice when you have absolutely no control over them whatsoever? That was my takeaway from life. You guys, I'm sure, have your own, and everybody listening has their own. And uh, that, that plays into it, too. Well, I love that you've been able to summarize it so neatly. <laughs> uh, been working on that for a while, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling like I'm still a work in progress in comparison. I love it. I love it. Aren't we all? (laughs) Rochelle, did you have any big beats we need to hit before we start to wrap? No, I I think he's he's hit them all. I think the, the only thing I want to make sure that I say is that absolutely buy this book and then buy the 20th anniversary edition, which I will also buy. It, it's something that you're going to keep referring back to. It's like having a coach in your head about how to deal with clients. And it's it's just a it's an incredible resource. Well, thank you both. I that's high praise coming from you guys. I do appreciate it. Well, Charlie, I know you've mentioned it already, but where should people go to find out more about the book and everything else you offer online? Thank you for the plug offering. The (laughs) the website is trustedadvisor.com, one word spelled O-R-T-R-U-S-T-E-D-A-D-V-I-S-O-R.com. And we'll put a link uh, under the show notes too. Super. Thank you. And let me know when you put it out and I can help, help promote this. It's been a great discussion with you guys. Thank you. Thank you so much, Charlie.